This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home, leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving as we continue into our holiday season. Today we're going to discuss a very important topic, HIV and AIDS. HIV refers to the human immunodeficiency virus, first identified in 1985. Without treatment, it can weaken your immune system, making you less able to fight infection and disease and develop AIDS, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Joining us today is a very special guest, Dr. Kathleen Squires, a world-class expert, unusually qualified as she is a full professor and served as the Chief of Infectious Disease at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital for 13 years. Prior to that, University of Alabama, University of Southern California. She's highly respected for her extensive research. She's been the chair of the NIH study section on HIV. She chaired the HIV Medicine Association, a national organization. She's been an advisor to World Health Organization and Department of Health and Human Services. She's a leader in international HIV conferences and congresses held around the world. She's had years of treating patients, teaching medical students, residents, fellows, and now she's the Executive Director of Scientific Affairs for HIV at Merck Research Labs. There can't be more than two and a half other people on the planet with those credentials. This is a lifelong commitment to helping patients with all infectious diseases, but especially those dealing with HIV. A very special welcome to my dear friend, Dr. Kathleen Squires. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Marianne. Very nice to join you. Looking forward to our discussion. 
Well, let's talk by beginning, beginning about uh, the evolution of HIV, because we both had the good fortune to train in New York City in the 80s. And in the early 80s, that pattern was developing scores of healthy young people, more men than women, but they were dying from severe infections that didn't respond to antibiotics. And one of the early common threads was the sexual lifestyle. And initially, it was called GRID, gay-related infectious diseases. Tell us a little bit about those early days. Sure. Well, so the first cases of what was called at the time GRID um, were described really in the MMWR, which is a, a weekly um, publication that comes from the Centers for Disease and Control. And in June of 1981, there were cases reported of young gay men who were presenting with uh, a very unusual type of pneumonia, which at the time was called pneumocystis cornei pneumonia or a kind of um, primarily skin cancer. We discovered it can go to other parts of the body subsequently, but something called Kaposi sarcoma. And as you said, the common thread here was that it was seen primarily at that time in men. I'm talking about now here in the United States and in men who had sex with men or MSM as we use that that uh, title. So um, then we started seeing that in larger numbers of those individuals. Uh, and again, this common thread of um, a, a sexual activity that might be leading to uh, this particular syndrome uh, and became, I think, clear within a few years that probably this had to, this was an infectious disease that was being passed um, from from um, these men to each other. We also recognized that there were other groups that were starting to pre present with these kinds of um, syndromes, if you will, and associated with infections. And those were individuals who were from Haiti and hemophiliacs. Um, and we know for hemophiliacs that they have to uh, be transfused with certain blood products so that they won't bleed. So there was this really common thread that was being established, and there were two researchers, uh, Bob Gallo in this country and Luc Montagnier at the uh, Louis Pasteur Institute in Paris, who identified that there appeared to be a virus and that it was in a class of viruses called retroviruses, and in 1985, both of these labs isolated that virus, um, which, and the virus was termed human immunodeficiency virus because it caused immunodeficiency in human beings, as you mentioned, which then affected the immune system and made those individuals vulnerable to yet other infections. And it was just really a remarkable time for both of us to be in New York City because I was at Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and you were at Cornell, and I did rotations at Cornell, but basically, um, I think it was the head of dermatology. Do you remember Dr. Safai at Memorial? And he was one of the first, if, if I'm right, that noticed this Kaposi sarcoma, or this, it looks like a strawberry birthmark almost, the, that um, skin cancer that's found in usually older Mediterranean men, right? 75, 80-year-olds, and it was showing up in these young people. And as GI doctors, we were finding those um, red reddish lesions in the GI tract and it was causing bleeding and it would determine what treatments we would offer those patients and uh, as you say then as the patterns became but more clear uh, the virus as you say was isolated in 1985 right exactly and the the thing was that both Kaposi sarcoma which as you said were it was seen 
um, in Mediterranean men and older uh, men, but also seen in sub-Saharan Africa Mm. um, and subsequently understood that this was due, that these lesions were due to a viral infection as well. But for both Kaposi's sarcoma, as well as for this um, uh, pulmonary infection caused by pneumocystis carinii, we really didn't have any good therapy because they were so unusual. Um, and so we really hadn't researched um, either of these conditions. And then other conditions and other relatively rare infections were popping up. Uh, of, uh, um, an atypical mycobacterial infection, we've all heard about tuberculosis, but the organism that causes tuberculosis can also cause atypical types of infection, what we call MAC or mycobacterium avium intracellulare, and then a fungal infection, cryptococcus, which most common manifestation is that it causes a brain infection. We were seeing these infections that were popping up in these individuals, and the common thread there was that it required a certain type of immune um, response, which is called cell-mediated immunity. That immunity is orchestrated by a certain immune cell, which is called a CD4 cell, and it became clear that the this human immunodeficiency virus actually attached to the CD4 cell, invaded it, set up an infection in the, in the actual DNA of this uh, cell, and then um, replicated very rapidly so that within a few weeks to a few months of infection, the, the human body would contain literally millions to billions of these viral particles, and they would go on to infect yet more CD4 cells. So you got this kind of vicious cycle where you uh, depleted the immune system, and these individuals would develop multiple um, infections because they couldn't fight it. They didn't have an immune system that could fight it. And so we were seeing, as you pointed out, well, while we were in New York City at that time, you know, you at Memorial Sloan Kettering, I was at Cornell right across the street, we were seeing these young men coming in really, you know, in their 20s and 30s and literally dying within weeks uh, to months of the of the identification of this syndrome. The, was, the good news is, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Mary. I was just going to say, it was heartbreaking. Let's take a little break and I want to pick up where we left off and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back with Dr. Kathleen Squires, professor of medicine and HIV specialist. Kathleen, I wanted to pick up where we left off. We were seeing very unusual infections in young, healthy people that weren't treatable. And I know as a GI fellow in training, we're seeing these patients, healthy, young, terrified patients who were just disintegrating, if I can use that word respectfully, they would just fade away, lose weight, and just pass away from uh, uncontrollable diarrhea. And we do biopsies routinely, uh, and for our audience, that's not always to look for cancer. We take tissue samples to look for infection or inflammation. And regular biopsies didn't show what was happening. We were doing biopsies and sending them for our listeners to um, be examined under electron microscopy, where we look at teeny, teeny particles. And that's when we found this atypical bacterium called Mycobacterium intracellular, uh, avium intracellulare, sort of a cousin to TB, would you say? Yes, right, correct. And it would 
Um, it's in drinking water. It can be found in showers and so forth. And in people who have a normal immune system, it doesn't really cause a problem. But for people who have this specific immune defect, um, the virus, or the virus, I'm sorry, this bacteria could actually invade it through the um, GI tract. And so it would, it would set up housekeeping, if you will, or an infection in the GI tract and then spread to other uh, parts of the body. Um, mm-hmm. And we would find it in the bone marrow and so forth. I mean, the very good news is that, as you said, Marianne, the virus was first isolated and identified in 1985. And by 1987, we had actually identified the first drug. It was called azadocimidine or AZT, that actually could inhibit the replication of HIV. And so within just a couple of years of identifying identifying virus, we did actually have some therapy. It, it wasn't really until almost 10 years later in 1996 that we understood that we had to combine drugs together for what we called highly active antiretroviral therapy that we could actually completely suppress this the viral replication or the ability of this virus to make more copies of itself um, but between 1987 and 1996 we we developed more and more drugs and by 1996 and when we suppressed this viral replication we saw that the the death rates um, uh, due to HIV and these associated infections were falling precipitously. And these individuals who were, as we said um, previously, were only living weeks to months, now were living for years um, up to the present time where an individual who is diagnosed with HIV infection and is on therapy, what we call suppressive therapy, we believe that these individuals can live um, essentially an almost normal lifespan. So we've really seen in the course of now almost 40 years, um, this reversal of of this um, totally or uh, universally fatal infection. We don't have a cure for HIV right now, but we can effectively control the, the viral replication and we can confer a very good quality of living and as I said an almost normal lifespan essentially normal lifespan to individuals with HIV infection so we've come a long way and and there's no silver lining to a tragedy like this uh, but I guess the lesson learned is uh, we've learned so much about the immune system not enough to conquer COVID but let's hope that we learn more lessons as we compare and contrast uh, the reaction of our immune system to COVID. And I guess, just like COVID, the ultimate hope is that we can develop a vaccine for HIV. Kate, I know a very special place in your heart is women and HIV. Tell us a little bit about your work there. Sure. Well, as I said, the first cases that were identified in this country um, were among men who have sex with men, or MSM, I'll use that term, um, going forward. But when we recognized that this was a sexually transmitted infection, um, you know, we we certainly realized that women could be at risk for this infection. And but within the first year of the identification of these cases in the United States, we were seeing HIV um, in women. Uh, and as it was recognized that this was a global infection, and in fact, we know that almost 85, 70 to 85 percent of all infections really occur within sub-Saharan Africa um, and Asia and on a global basis. And in those areas of the world, we we see that 50% of individuals who have HIV infection are male and 50% therefore are female. So um, 
because it is a sexually transmitted disease, we certainly see HIV infection in women. The issue, well, there are several issues in women, but one major issue is that most women who have HIV infection are in their childbearing years. So we see this intersection between HIV um, and pregnancy. And we do know that if a woman has HIV infection, she can transmit HIV to her fetus. However, if she is on therapy, and again, we uh, have achieved viral, uh, virologic suppression, meaning we have the virus under control, the likelihood that she will transmit it to her um, her fetus has really been decreased from about 25% to now really less than 1%. Um, and so we've, we've seen that has been, I think, one of the great advances in, oh, the, yeah. in the treatment of HIV infection. Um, so we're, we're, we're very happy sort of about that outcome. But that brings us up, uh, brings us to a discussion of what are the risk factors for transmission or acquisition of HIV infection. And again, uh, I can't stress uh, enough that this is a this is a sexually transmitted infection. So um, we know that uh, if we practice safe sex, that we can, which means using uh, condoms and knowing who your sexual partner is and so forth, we can decrease the risk of transmission. But we now know that if an individual knows that they have HIV infection, if they are on therapy, and again, if they have a suppressed viral infection, a controlled viral infection, that they essentially cannot transmit this infection through sexual, um, uh, you know, uh, sexual activity. transmission. And yeah. Activity, right. And that's led to the, um, the term that we use that some people have heard of U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. Now, I read, I'm sure it's pretty rare, but... Uh, if it's undetectable in the blood, is it on rare occasion found in uh, semen? Well, the virus can be found in genital secretions. It can be found in semen and it can be found in vaginal secretions, so in, in the vagina um, and in the cervix. However, again, if a person is on antiretroviral therapy or um, antiviral therapy, we believe that even there, these very weak signals that sometimes we see um, means that there might be parts of the virus there because we have these very sensitive tests looking for it, but that virus mm. can't actually be transmitted. And, and we have good, very good, good data, very good studies that, that document that now. So. Thank goodness. And I know, um, again, from what I've been reading, if a person has other uh, active um, sexually transmitted infection that the inflammation in the genital area makes it easier to acquire and transmit HIV. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Uh, especially uh, sexually transmitted diseases that cause ulcers in the genital mm -hmm. tract. Um, mm -hmm. they, those usually white cells and those CD4 cells will be attracted to those areas to try and control the infection there. And so if HIV is, uh, is in that area, yes, you increase the likelihood that HIV can be uh, transmitted. So yes, having a sexually, other sexually transmitted uh, infection does increase the risk of transmission and acquisition of HIV. 
And I think people know that sharing contaminated needles, uh, healthcare workers with needle sticks, that's a little bit easier to track, but still a worry, not, not as much as it used to. And, and for people listening, blood that's used for transfusion is tested for HIV and other forms of hepatitis. Um, and I wanted to just revisit, you mentioned mother-baby transmission at, at, um, uh, at birth, but also during breastfeeding, it's important for women to stay on their therapy um, once they've had the baby if they're, if they're gonna breastfeed. So that is correct, yes. Uh, it can be transmitted through breastfeeding. It is recommended in parts of the world where moms have um, uh, access to formula or to sterile water so they can, they can make their own formula that they do not breastfeed and that the new major uh, nutrition for, for the babe, for the, the newborn, um, is a formula and that you don't breastfeed. However, in some areas of the world, women do have to breastfeed because they don't have access to other forms of nutrition. Um, and uh, yes, the, the virus can be transmitted through breastfeeding. Um, and I too, is it true that circumcision may protect heterosexual men and decrease in their risk, but not in men, uh, MSM, men who have sex with men? Is that right? That that is correct. In in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, uh, yes, circumcision is used to decrease the risk of acquisition by heterosexual men. The difference is um, in terms of the sexual practices between heterosexual and homosexual men. And we do know, for instance, that um, rectal um, in intercourse really confers one of the highest risks of HIV infection. So that's, so that's one of the reasons that you see those differences. But yes, circumcision has been used as a way to lower the risk of acquisition of HIV infection, and it's mm -hmm. still used um, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa as one method to decrease acquisition of HIV infection. This is so fascinating, and we're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And welcome back. We're learning very important information about HIV, prevention and transmission with Dr. Kathleen Squires. Kathleen, tell us if you would, the best ways to prevent acquiring or transmitting, transmitting HIV? So um, as we talked about, the, the major um, kind of uh, sources of HIV infection are in genital fluids um, and in blood. So, um, and the major risk factors, therefore, for acquiring HIV infection would be through sexual activity, either heterosexual or homosexual activity, or in terms of bloodborne, um, if you are uh, using intravenous drugs and you are sharing needles or works, as the expression goes. So if you, and the other major mode of transmission would be mother-to-child transmission, and we've already talked about that, and the fact that if mom is on therapy and has well-controlled HIV infection, the chances of transmitting to her baby are basically negligible. So in terms of the other two major risk factors, it then becomes really easy, if you will, to prevent acquiring HIV infection. You need to practice safe sex. 
And you need to be very careful about not sharing um, works or sharing infected needles that or needles that may contain infectious um, fluids. But the other really good piece of news is now that we know, absolutely know that we can prevent acquisition of HIV infection for people who are at risk by actually taking some of the same drugs that we use for the treatment of HIV infection. And that is called, we have uh, two terms for that, PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis or PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis. So it is now recommended for people who are at increased risk for acquiring HIV infection. And that would mean, for instance, that you don't practice safe sex, you're not using condoms, that you have multiple partners and you don't know the status of your partners, um, that you would uh, uh, be eligible for taking, again, one of the drugs that we use to treat HIV infection uh, to prevent the acquisition of HIV um, infection. Uh, So that is PrEP. So, and you would t- the the treatment that is available at the moment is a daily pill, and you would take that on a daily basis. For PEP, if you're not on <clears throat> therapy, excuse me, but you have a high risk exposure, the the condom broke, or you find out that the partner that you're with, um, you know, may have HIV infection or whatever, then PEP or post exposure prophylaxis would come into play, and that would be to use um, some of the same drugs that you might use for PrEP to take uh, a a cocktail of HIV drugs for 30 days after that exposure to uh, decrease the risk of uh, having that exposure translate into a productive infection. The third term that we use is TASP or treatment as prevention. And what that means is for an individual who's who's on HIV, um, who is HIV infected and is on therapy, again, if they have an undetectable viral load, then they do not transmit. So treatment as prevention um, and leading to that uh, term that I told you before, U equals U. So the really good news is that we have very effective ways to prevent acquisition of HIV infection now. So I guess treatment is prevention if a couple is married and um, one is determined to have HIV. Just as a reminder to our listeners, you can have the virus, but not necessarily the severe uh, manifestation of it, which is AIDS. Am I correct? You can be carrying the virus, but not be immunodeficient. That's correct. So you Mm -hmm. would treat the person with the HIV and not the person who's HIV free. Um, Are there significant side effects from the treatments? So, so in the almost 40 years that we've, um, you know, had the experience of developing drugs for HIV, um, we now have over 30 individual agents or combinations of agents to treat HIV. And, you know, as new agents have become available, we've uh, identified some of the major kind of, um, or I should say, potential side effects and really done some designing of the newer agents to to try and factor out um, uh, things about those agents that would cause side effects. So with our current modern therapy, if you will, every drug potentially can have side effects, but 
the, the major drugs that we are using or the most common regimens that we're using now to treat uh, HIV infection really are very well tolerated, do have some potential side effects, but for the most part, uh, again, are very well tolerated and most individuals do not have adverse events or, or major side effects from these drugs, which is another very good piece of news. We have, we have also evolved from having to give people handfuls of pills uh, because, as I mentioned, it's a combination of drugs that really lead to the best ability to suppress the viral replication to modern regimens where we have combinations in one pill. So we can treat HIV infection with one pill a day, which is another major advance. Uh, the the next wave of therapy really now is to try and uh, develop drugs that have that are uh, have longer half lives so that these combination of drugs can be delivered on a less than daily basis and there are several agents experimental agents that have that capability that are now being tested and probably within the next year to few years we're going to see some regimens that can be given again less frequently than daily. And of course, that helps everyone because the most uh, disciplined person is going to forget their medicines or run out and it's a snowstorm and they can't, for whatever reason, there are times when people won't be able to take the daily uh, medication. And then you said too that there are possibly treatments that could be given uh, once a month as an injection or even sub-Q under the skin every three to six months, maybe even implants that they're retreated uh, once a year. Correct. All of all of those um, kind of new ways of delivering drugs are are being uh, looked at. And so, one thing I will say is that you know it sounds really easy to pop a pill a day, but um, many many individuals uh, are reluctant even to take a pill a day because um, you know they look at that pill and it reminds them that they have HIV infection. I've certainly heard that. Uh, complaint from some of the individuals that, you know, I have managed. Um, and there's a number of other um, issues that have to do with daily medication. Nobody likes to feel like they're a patient and they're, you know, they're beholden to a drug, if you will. So right. really trying to help people to liberate them from from that daily requirement, I think really is, is kind of the next the next frontier, if you will, for treatment mm-hmm. of HIV infection. As I said, we don't have a cure right now. But so what we can do is is really suppress this virus and keep mm-hmm. it in check. We have a couple minutes left, Kate. The U.S. government, you told me, pays more for HIV therapy around the world. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, there is a program which is called the PEPFAR program, which was founded um, during the Bush, the second Bush um the Bush Sun administration. Um, and since that time, um, through that program, the U.S. government has supported HIV treatment uh, programs really throughout the world, but really has concentrated in certain parts of the world, so in sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia. And it, it was uh, started at a time when we were really advancing in the treatment of HIV infection but we knew that the bulk of the infection was outside of this country, outside of Europe, and that those individuals really didn't have ready access to these drugs be, you know, because of the cost constraints and because of the, the health systems in those countries. And so um, uh, this program was put together and to this day really does uh, supply um, and help underwrite 
uh, treatment programs, again, throughout the world. So mm-hmm. uh, it, is, it is one of the, the major foreign policy successes, I think, for the past few administrations. And, and just one last thing that I always think of as a GI doctor is that um, if you're fortunate enough to respond to the therapy, that portends a better uh, outcome or long-term prognosis. But it's so important to keep up with regular checkups because there is an increased risk of certain cancers. Am I right? Lymphomas and the Kaposi sarcoma we talked about before and even cervical cancer. Yes. So despite the fact that we really can control the virus, keep it in check, and that people's lifespan really has increased to uh, into the normal range, we do recognize that there's some residual inflammation that is that occurs because of this persistent infection, which will increase the risk for things like heart disease, for certain types of cancers. So it is really important for individuals as they age with HIV infection um, to make sure that they have all of the routine screenings that all of us have to go through and that their physician is aware that they have HIV infection so that they understand that they, some of these conditions they may have a slightly increased risk for. So very important to keep mm-hmm. up Great. with your regular health screenings and so forth. Mm-hmm. Great advice from Dr. Kathleen Squires. Let's take a break, and we'll be back in a moment. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're here in our final segment with Dr. Kathleen Squires, who now is in research at Merck research labs, as well as continuing her work with patients at Jefferson. Tell us, Kate, are we close to a cure for HIV AIDS? So uh, so as I mentioned, Marianne, um, we can do a very good job of controlling the virus right now. There have been three people in the world to date that probably have been cured of HIV infection. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of these individuals. They underwent bone marrow transplants because of cancers that they had. And what was unique about these three individuals is as part of a bone marrow transplant, basically you undergo conditioning to wipe out your immune system um, for the certain kind of cancer that you have. And then you get your immune system replaced with uh, immune cells. The the, uh, HIV as I said, infects CD4 cells, which are a kind of immune cell, and it requires a CD4 cell receptor as well as a second receptor, which is called CCR5. There are some individuals who harbor CD4 cells that do not have this second receptor or this CCR5 receptor, and those people are immune to, or I should say, mostly immune to HIV infection. So in these three individuals who underwent these bone marrow transplants, they had their immune system replaced with CD4 cells that did not have a CCR5 receptor. And therefore, they could not, more CD4 cells could not become infected. And over time, because they were on antiretroviral therapy, the virus went away. This is a very, very, very special circumstance, but it really gives us an insight as to how we might cure HIV infection. So what I can say is that it is a very active area of research, and there is hope that at some point in the future, we will be able to cure, at least uh, in some circumstances, people with, who uh, have HIV infection. Mm-hmm. However, the take-home message is 
What you really want to do is not acquire HIV. We've talked about how that is possible um, to do. And so I would really encourage people to assess their risk for acquiring HIV infection in terms of the types of behaviors that they, uh, that they pursue. And if they believe that they are at increased risk for acquiring HIV infection, they discuss it with their physician. They should, everybody should undergo at least one HIV test. Why is that? Because if you have it, you can still live a very good life uh, if you're on antiretroviral therapy. Um, and if you're at increased risk, uh, take PrEP. Uh, take pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to let people know that there's a really good website if you want more information about any of these things, and that's www.hiv.gov, and it's a great source of information about prevention, treatment, risk factors, the whole gamut. So just like COVID having spikes that need to find a, a heliport to land on to infect the cell, if we can wipe out receptors that HIV can attach to um, is one way to to get rid of that nasty virus. And Kate, what you've reviewed with our listeners today is invaluable. And please take heed, safe sex, frequent uh, screening and testing for those who think they are at risk. And you're going to repeat the website for us, Dr. Kathleen Squires? Yes, it's www.hiv.gov. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kathleen Squires, and stay well. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now, your real champion, presented by the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. I know you've got the heart of a champion. And now for your real champion, Ryan Mannion, the Gold Star Sister. We often hear a moving story about a hero. But have you ever heard about an entire family of heroes? Travis Mannion, a local student attended LaSalle College High School where he lettered in three sports and received the award for unselfish dedication and leadership from the Philadelphia Wrestling Association. At the U.S. Naval Academy, he won more awards as a top national wrestler and was recognized again for leadership and dedication. He graduated in 2004 and was deployed to Iraq in 2005. He returned safely but went back to Iraq in December of 06. On April 29, 2007, his patrol was ambushed, and while pulling two injured Marines to safety, he lost his life to sniper fire. He was awarded the Silver Star and the Bronze Star with Valor. Soon after, his mother Janet formed the Travis Mannion Foundation. Travis' roommate at the Naval Academy, Brendan Looney, became his best friend and dedicated his own training as a Navy SEAL in Travis' honor. Three years later, Brendan died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. Brendan's wife Amy requested that the two friends be buried side by side at Arlington National Cemetery. Initially, Travis' mother had him buried close to home, but to honor their memory, she brought her son Travis to Arlington and laid him to rest next to Brendan. Travis' father, Tom, retired Marine Corps colonel, found the courage to pay tribute with a eulogy at the Arlington ceremony. He called them warriors for freedom and brothers forever. The goal of the foundation is to honor the fallen by challenging the living. Though he was 15 months younger, Ryan always thought of Travis as her big brother, strong and caring, and when she speaks, it's from her soul. The foundation aims to empower veterans and families of the fallen to develop character in future generations and the community at large. Over 2,000 veterans educate students from middle school through college in the Character Does Matter program. 
More than half a million young people have learned about America's heroes and the heroes they can become. The foundation supports the mental health and well-being of vets, especially as they transition back to civilian life and feel part of a community. They give grants to families of fallen service members and hundreds of service projects, including food banks. Shortly after Travis and Brendan were lost, another young Marine named Robert Kelly died as he stepped on a landmine in Afghanistan. His father, four-star General John Kelly, the highest-ranking officer to ever lose a child to war. He served as White House Chief of Staff under President Trump and spoke publicly about the pain of his loss. Ryan and the two wives, Amy Looney and Heather Kelly, wrote a book, The Knock at the Door, Three Gold Star Families Bonded by Grief and Purpose. The three women share their stories so others can find resilience in times of challenge, be it loss of a loved one, a marriage, a job. Janet Mannion began the foundation in 2008, but lost her own battle to cancer in 2012. Ryan now serves as president of the foundation. She loved her brother and she loves her country. Inspired by all the young men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. She wants the 99% of the population who don't serve to hear and understand the sacrifices of those who do serve. Just last week, Ryan was on the evening news. With COVID, a decision was made to cancel the annual Wreaths Across America. Since 1992, a Christmas wreath is placed on all 14,000 graves in Arlington, and Ryan, Gold Star families, and members of Congress went to the Secretary of the Army. Ryan said, the easy thing would have been to accept the decision, but the men and women who sacrificed never took the easy way out. So let's make this work. And when President Trump heard the news, he reversed the decision. Two of those wreaths marked the graves of Travis and his mother, Janet, who was laid to rest only a few steps away from her son. Just before leaving for his fatal tour in Iraq, Travis was asked why he wanted to serve. And he said, if not me, then who? Last week, I spoke to Ryan on the phone. As I listened to the story of Travis and her family, the tears flowed down my face. It felt good to be an American. We salute you, Travis, Tom and Janet, and Ryan Mannion, your real champions. Get involved or donate, travismannion.org. That's M-A-N-I-O-N, travismannion.org. Tune in next week to hear about the chronic changes resulting from COVID. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.net. Now eat your Thanksgiving leftovers listening to the sounds of Sinatra, and always remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.